Welcome to Historicity, where we turn back time to see how cities got to be the way they are. I'm Angus Lockyer. I've been teaching and writing history for over 20 years. But when I want to think about how the past became the present and where we might go next, I head outside, walk the streets and pick apart the layers. And I'm Jelena Sofronievich. I'm fascinated by the way that history and politics and culture intersect. How our imperial pasts have left their trace on our material present, not least in the streets. In this walk, Leisured City, we're exploring the West End of London, where squares and streets were built on aristocratic estates, and where the wealthy have flocked ever since. Not that the rich have had everything their own way. Some neighbourhoods proved less desirable than their owners might have wished. Others have seen retail, and worse, trespass on elite enclaves. But if the East End has always been where the real work of the city gets done, the West End is where those with the readies come to invest and to spend it. In recent years, much of the spending has come from overseas. As ever, a couple of notes before we get underway. We've designed these walks to follow on foot, but we know that you might not be on the streets. You can download maps and transcripts from the episode notes. If you're on the street, you'll find that we're quite fast walkers. But of course, you can listen to this at your own pace. Just change the speed on your podcast app to suit yourself. In this episode, Aristocratic Capitalism, we'll explore the basic economics of the West End by looking at how one estate was transformed by speculative development. Once upon a time, the Bedford estate stretched all the way from Covent Garden to Euston Road. It's much smaller now, but the outlines of the past are still visible. But we're starting the story just outside the estate, in front of St. Martin in the Fields. We're going to see what was here before the Bedfords and others got their hands on the land. It's on the east side of Trafalgar Square, just north of Charing Cross Station. We'll meet you there. So here we are at St. Martin in the Fields, standing in the portico. It's a freezing cold day. We're both bundled up very warm. You're going to hear our coats rustling. Right in front of me, I've got Trafalgar Square. I've got Nelson on his column up high. Of course, there's the much more interesting fourth plinth occupied by a fabulous sculpture at the moment. We've talked about both of these in a previous walk. To my left, I can see a bit of Whitehall. To my right, I can see an extraordinary building with a globe on top. And then behind me, I've got this incredible church with this wonderful portico. It's hard to imagine when we look around now, given all this more recent development, but this gives us a chance to try to imagine what the West End looked like before the aristocrats came to town. As the name of this church suggests, we would have been next to a church in some fields outside the city, which is back in the east, and we'd have a lane leading north of us to our right to another church in Moorfields. The church I've got behind me isn't the original one, of course. St. Martin in the Fields is first recorded in the late 12th century or so. At that point, it's opposite the Royal Mews on what is now Trafalgar Square, this open space. At that point, a mews is a place you can find hawks, royal hawks, of course, which are molting, also known as mewing. That's where Muse comes from. Not yet for horses. That comes along in the 16th century. At that point, the Muse for hawks get turned into Muse for royal horses, and they keep on expanding thereafter. So the church is on the front of a narrow lane backing onto these Muse. The church is rebuilt then in the 1720s. That's when the area is beginning to get transformed. Covent Garden, where we'll be in just a little bit, is beginning to get developed. The architect of this church is called James Gibbs, and the whole thing costs £33,000. Sounds like a bargain. Uh, In those days, that was quite a bit of cash. And he's doing something quite new here. This kind of like portico front with columns is a novelty. It very quickly becomes standard. You can see it in Anglican churches all the way around the world. But at that point, 18th century, it's still facing this very narrow lane. And it's not until the early 19th century, a century later, when the Muse go over to Buckingham Palace, when Trafalgar Square is created, that we begin to get what we see today. We've talked about Trafalgar Square in an earlier walk. We're going to talk more about the bigger scheme of which it's a part later in this walk in the next episode. 
But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's make our way to the Bedford Estate, which is where this episode really starts. And we're going to walk up St. Martin's Lane. Turn right, you'll see the road forks in two. We're going to take the right branch, which is straight ahead of us. That's St. Martin's Lane. St. Martin's Lane originally in the early 17th century belongs to the Earl of Salisbury. And he gets a license to develop it quite early, right at the beginning of the century. But very quickly the king is beginning to complain. Sewage is flowing down here and into his palace at Whitehall. So we're crossing over St. Martin's Place now and heading into the lane itself. So we're now in St. Martin's Lane. It's a little bit quieter. And we can see the lane is actually quite wide now. It's widened in the early 19th century when Trafalgar Square is built to make sure it can lead into it. And then in the late 19th century, we begin to see what we've got now. Theatres coming to town. And most of what we've got is late 19th century, 20th century building here. First thing you can see on the right is an extraordinary thing. Um, the Colosseum. This is built in 1902, 1904. Originally, it's not an opera house, which it is now. It's a variety house. Very Baroque in style. It's got a kind of tower, rather like St. Paul's Cathedral up top, and this terracotta on the facade. An architectural critic is called the Auditorium here. Devil may care neo-empire. It is quite spectacular. Originally, um, it doesn't just have bars. It also has tea rooms with telegram offices because there are four performances a day and you want somewhere to do a little bit of business in between the shows. Now, of course, it's occupied by the English National Opera. That's been the case since 1968 when it was called the Sadler's Wells Opera. But it's now under threat. The Arts Council has just said they have to get out of town because there's too much stuff in London and the arts community is up in arms. But it's not the only theatre on the lane. Just across the street, a bit further up, we've got the Duke of York's. We can see the sign. If you saw that auditorium, it would be Louis XV. The Victorians, the Edwardians, were great at rampaging through the architectural past. Across the street from that, we've got a very different block. It's concrete. It's actually one of the buildings of Richard Seifert, who we're going to meet in the next episode. That's a hotel. That's St. Martin's Hotel. It was remodeled in the 1990s. If you go inside now, it's very fashionable, raw concrete, and then soft furnishings in all kinds of colors. Not cheap. A little further up again, we've got a Quaker meeting house. That's late 18th century. Then on the left again, we've got Cecil Court. Cecil is one of the family names of the Earl of Salisbury. This is now a haven for book lovers, booksellers. And then just beyond that, on the left again, we've got a striking mansion court. And indeed, we have the Salisbury pub. Again, late 19th century, an original interior worth having a pint in here. But we want to turn our back on the pub and go up these narrow little steps into Goodwin's Court. So we've turned under the archway into Goodwin's Court and immediately you can see we're in a very different kind of space. You can hear it too. It's narrow and it gives you a sense of the alleyways that were being built up before the Bedford Estate gets going. None of the buildings are original, of course, but still on the right-hand side here we've got a striking set of bow-fronted, bulging windows. Uh, these are indeed from the late 18th century, but they give you this sense of what was here earlier. We're going to the end of the court under the sign for Bedford number 24. We can already see under the archway and out onto that street. We've come out of Goodwin's Court under the archway. We're turning left on Bedford Berry, then immediately right on New Row, which we can see already. New Row is actually built at the end of the development of the Bedford Estate in 1635. It's built to connect the estate to the lane we've just left, St. Martin's Lane. Now it's mainly 18th and 19th century, like much of the building around here. 
So we're just walking a short way down New Row on our right and on our left we've got two 19th century pubs. At the next street, Bedford Street, we're going to turn right. So we've turned right on Bedford Street. We're just going down a short way. This, in fact, marks the west end of the Bedford Estate. It's built up in 1631 as part of this planned development. Already we can see it's much more geometric. Now, again, the buildings are mainly Victorian. If you look down on the right-hand side of the street, you'll see a Wagamama in a very classical-looking building. Roman High Renaissance is the technical term for this style. Before that, it was, in fact, a post office. Tells you something about the change of use over time. We're going down Bedford Street just a little way and then we're going to turn left under an iron archway and immediately ahead of us we'll see what looks like and indeed is a church. Stop in the churchyard. So here we are in St Paul's Churchyard. Right ahead of me I've got this red brick church, a strange pediment, a clock there, two bells. Around it a courtyard formed by yellow flats and then a rather peaceful garden with some benches which are very welcome. Covent Garden is where the West End starts, for good reason. Until the early 16th century, like much of the space between the city and Westminster, which we talked about in our first walk, A Tale of Two Cities. This area has religious owners. Most of them do. It's the garden of a convent, hence Covent Garden, and they're producing food for Westminster Abbey. Then, of course, in the early 16th century, Henry VIII dissolves the monasteries. We've heard this many times before in our previous walks. We will hear it again in this walk repeatedly. And so the convent's land passes first into royal and then into aristocratic hands. In 1553, the Crown grants this piece of property to John Russell. He's already served it for 40 years, making his way through the slightly problematic politics of the early 16th century. And indeed, he's been made the first Earl of Bedford a few years before. Fast forward a little bit, his great-grandson moves into a new mansion on the estate, on the north side of the Strand, which is just to our south. And then 40 years later, he dies, and the title and the estate passes to his cousin, another great-grandson of the first Earl. So we're now on the fourth Earl, and he sees an opportunity. By the early 17th century, it's the Stuarts who are in power, and their court is becoming a magnet for those who want to move up in the world. That's increasing the demand for a place in London among the elite, and so it provides an incentive for aristocrats to start building on their land. Bedford, who we've just met, of course, has a prime piece of property. Here we are, we're up above the river, we're close to the Strand, which is the main link between the city and Westminster, and we're a stone's throw from the court, a well-thrown stone. But it's the crown that's the catalyst for this development. Already by this point, like the alleyway we've just come through, Goodwin's Court, the area around here is beginning to be built up, but not in a way that pleases the king. Long Acre, a road we'll meet in just a bit, just to our north here, particularly offends him, and he asks the Earl of Bedford, it's his land, that he should pave it, improve the quality of the area. Bedford says, sure, but I want leave to build in return. Charles says, OK, but you're going to have to build a square and a church, and you're going to use Inigo Jones, who's the court architect we've met. Inigo before, he's the guy who kicks off classicism in England. You may remember the banqueting house from our walk around Westminster. Bedford, of course, doesn't want to spend the money. Aristocrats are very good with their money. So he asks Inigo for a church, which is, quote, not much better than a barn, or at least that's what we think. And Jones promises him the handsomest barn in England, and that's what we're looking at. But to see the full effect of the church and the bigger picture of the estate as a whole, we have to make our way to the front, walk straight towards the church, turn right under an archway, and then left on the street.
We've just come out from under the archway onto Henrietta Street. There's no street sign, but there is a plaque right in front of us saying Jane Austen stayed here in 1813-14. But we're turning left. We can see the London Transport Museum ahead of us. Head for that, then turn left on the piazza and stand in front of the church. So here we are in front of St Paul's Church under the portico, another portico. In front of us we've got Covent Garden Market, around us we can see various quite tall buildings now. Inigo Jones did his job for the Earl of Bedford. This is a very handsome barn. It's the first parish church in London for a new century, but it's breaking completely with the existing architecture for churches. What we've got here is something that gestures all the way back to Etruscan temples with this temple front. Originally, there are steps leading down to the piazza. It also gestures forward to what's going to come along in the late 18th century. St. Martin in the Fields, where we started, is in some ways a copy of this. But it's also a bit of a sham. We've got our backs to something that looks like a door, but in fact is not a door at all. If this was a door, you'd bang straight into the altar when you went through it. And of course it's changed a lot over the years. Nowadays it's known as the Actors' Church because the West End is full of theatres. The same goes for the square. Inigo Jones is gesturing all the way back to a Roman forum. He's also kind of copying the Place des Vosges in Paris, which you may know. It was built a few years before this, so you want to be up with the times. So originally you've got houses on the north side to our left and on the east side, the far side of the market, with tall arcades. The Earl of Bedford takes some of these. He takes the vaults under all of them, one way of making sure the income keeps coming in, and the rest are built up gradually by the lessees. We can get some sense of it when we look to our left. We can see an arcade there, although now the tenant is Apple selling their computers. The rest of the estate around this square is quite quickly filled in, and it indeed encourages other developments close by, just to our east. And things go okay for a while. John Stripe, who's an ecclesiastical historian, writing in 1700, notes that the square is, quote, well inhabited by a mixture of nobility, gentry, and wealthy tradesmen, scarce admitting of any poor, not being pestered with mean courts and alleys. Maybe like the one we just walked through, Goodwin's Court. But there's a storm cloud ahead. The fifth earl, who becomes the first duke, aristocratic titles have inflation like everything else, that fifth earl gets a license for a fruit and vegetable market in the square. So the market is here from the middle of the 17th century. But then by the 18th century, the nobles, the quality, the residents you want here, they're leaving. They're leaving for newer, more exclusive, more fashionable developments further west. They're being pulled by those. They're also being pushed because the square and its surroundings are beginning to deteriorate. They're deteriorating because the entertainers have arrived. You've got the Theatre Royal here on the far side of the square. That's there from 1732. A lot of Handel operas debut there if you're into classical music. Soon enough, along with the actors and the singers, come the taverns and the coffee houses and the gambling dens and the brothels. By the late 18th century, the founder of London's first police force, which is based very close to this square, is noting that, quote, one would imagine that all the prostitutes in the kingdom had picked upon the rendezvous. Arcades are a good place to do business. The Bedfords try to manage the whole thing. There's an Act of Parliament in 1813 which regulates the market. In the 1830s, they build the market house, the stone bits of the market we see in front of us. They keep on building. There's a floral hall on the far side built in 1859 for flowers, obviously. The market keeps expanding in the 1870s, in the 1880s. Bits of the church are rearranged to accommodate it. There are about 1,000 porters working here on a daily basis by the end of the century. The point is, there are multiple Covent Gardens, therefore. Here's Charles Dickens writing in the middle of the century in Little Dorrit courtly ideas of Covent Garden as a place with famous coffee houses where gentlemen wearing gold-laced coats and swords had quarrelled and fought duels. Costly ideas of Covent Garden as a place where there were flowers in winter at guineas a piece, pineapples at guineas a pound and peas at guineas a pint. 
picturesque ideas of Covent Garden as a place where there was a mighty theatre showing wonderful and beautiful sights to richly dressed ladies and gentlemen, and which was forever far beyond the reach of poor Fanny or poor uncle. Desolate ideas of Covent Garden, as having all those arches in it, where the miserable children in rags among whom she had just now passed, like young rats, slunk and hid, fed on offal, huddled together for warmth, and were hunted about. Teeming ideas of Covent Garden, as a place of past and present mystery, romance, abundance, want, beauty, ugliness, fair country gardens, and foul street gutters, all confused together. And that depiction of multiple Covent Gardens stays true into the early 20th century. By that time, the Theatre Royal has become the Royal Opera House, and so Virginia Woolf, who else talking about London, notes a contrast between the men and women in full evening dress, on the one hand, and then, on the other, Covent Garden porters, dingy little clerks in their ordinary working clothes, coarse-looking women in aprons. By that point, in fact, the Bedfords have sold. Aristocrats aren't doing well after the First World War, and we're going to come back to this in the third episode of this walk. So they sell. It's in private hands for a while. Then the government steps in. It buys Covent Garden, the market at least, in 1962, and then moves the market to Vauxhall, south of the river, where the American embassy now is, in 1974. One of the reasons is that the Greater London Council wants to completely redevelop Covent Garden. It wants to build the city of the future. Multi-level roads, high-rise offices, walkways in the sky. If you think of the Barbican, you get some sense of this. It was planning to demolish 60% of the buildings we see around us, 80% of the housing, and of course people are outraged. There's an explosive reaction. They have a minister in the government on their side who very cannily lists for preservation 250 carefully selected buildings, and so the plan for a modernist city of the future dies a death. What happens instead is new users begin to pour in, retail, things like this. This is commercial gentrification for some. It's become a tourist playground. It's extraordinary today that there aren't any tour groups with people telling much the same story as I am. For others, a more balanced view maybe is that Covent Garden remains the right scale to promote various kinds of activity. It's appealing, it's colourful, it's popular, according to one contemporary commentator. It's also the prototype for what has happened much more recently all around the city and indeed on the fringes. If you think of King's Cross or Old Street or Shoreditch or even Bermondsey south of the river, the thing that happened in Covent Garden is beginning to happen there as well. But what's most important for our purposes today is that the Earl of Bedford, Inigo Jones, have provided a prototype, not quite the template, but the prototype for the exploitation by aristocrats of their estate. We have to wait a little while until the later 17th century for the development to really get going. We'll pick up that story in the second half of this episode. But on the way there, we can see a bit more of what Bedford did on his estate and what some others did in his wake. So we're going to leave the square now. We've got the market in front of us. We're turning left, head towards the pinkish building, then turn right in front of the arcade. We're walking in front of the arcade now. We can see Apple underneath it. It continues to the end of the square where we can see what is the Royal Opera House. But turn left on James Street. As we turn left on our right-hand side, we can see three rather clashing buildings. The end of the arcade, a kind of modernist structure next to it, then a kind of classical structure next to it. All of this is, in fact, extensions to the Royal Opera House from the 1980s and 1990s. On the other side of the street, we've got some 17th, 18th century houses. And straight ahead of us, two pubs. The White Lion on the left from 1888, the Nags Head on the right a few years later, 1900. Head for the pubs, turn left on Floral Street.
We've turned left on Floral Street. We've just turned around and glimpsed back. On the other side of Floral Street, we can see a crazy bridge suspended over the street. This is part of the Royal Opera House extension. It links the Opera House to the ballet school. But on our bit of Floral Street, we can see we're in a narrower street. It's a quieter street. You can hear that. And we've got 19th century buildings for the most part on either side for the estate. This is a pioneering muse. We've met this before, but it's no longer for royal hawks or royal horses. These are stables for the horses of the people who live on the square. And this is part of the pattern that becomes common thereafter. There's a similar muse on the south side of the square. As we walk down Floral Street on our left, we've got Ted Baker. On our right, we've got Paul Smith. This is fashion central these days. Ted Baker, though, originally is built in 1860 for a seed warehouse. You've got a fruit and vegetable market. You need seeds to grow them, so that's where they did that. Just a little bit beyond that, number 12, originally parish schools. It's got an Italianate makeover. Now it's where Peloton hangs out for people who don't want to bicycle outside their own homes. We're walking down the street a little ways, turn right on the first corner, Langley Court. We turned right on Langley Court, a narrower pedestrian street, head to the end of it. And at the end of Langley Court, we find ourselves on Long Acre. We can see it's not a straight street, it curves. This was originally the north boundary of the Abbey lands, which of course then becomes the north boundary of the estate. And it's the street that the king wanted paved and which kicks off the whole development of the Bedford estate. The north side of the street belongs to somebody different, though. This belongs to the Mercers. We've met them before in our walk around the city. They're a very rich livery company, and they still own this block today. But you can see the street again has changed. Now again, it's 19th century buildings, and there's an awful lot of fashion. On the other side, we can see ahead of us Rice. This is, in fact, a British company, but it's in a very ornate 1895 building. We'll cross the street, then look back to this side where we're now standing. We're standing just on the other side of Long Acre, looking back. We've got the Coca-Cola store, we've got Gap, we've got Arquette, American and Scandinavian capitalism in full blast. But the buildings are very different. The Coke one is in a building from 1862. It's got cast iron windows. You could use cast iron then to build high. And then the one next to it, very ornate indeed. Up top you can see carriage manufactory. Long Acre in the 18th century was cabinet makers. In the 19th century it's all about carriage building and then it changes again. And then next to that, in Arquette, you've actually got a four-story fruit warehouse. But the front of it was built in the 1935 to bring it bang up to date so it could sell things as opposed to store them. We're continuing down Langley Street. Turn left at the very colourful mural right in front of us. As we go down Langley Street on our right, we can see more 19th century warehouses. At the far end, in fact, this is a brewery from the 1830s which occupied this whole block. We've turned left in front of the very colourful mural into Mercer Walk. This is very recent redevelopment by the Mercer's company from 2017. As we turn the corner and wend our way through the walk, on our right we can see an extraordinary sculpture of a silver tree with multicoloured baubles hanging off it. Very desres for various businesses here, including an old bookshop, Stanford's, established in 1853. We're continuing through Mercer Walk, as we do, we can see St. Martin's Courtyard, but don't go under that archway, turn right instead. As we turn right in front of St. Martin's Courtyard, we're just glancing left and we've got two very elaborately decorated houses, Tunbridge House, Maidstone House. These two are built by the Mercer's Company much earlier. This is 1909 and these are in fact flats for artisans. It's kind of workers' housing, but extraordinarily decorated. But we're turning right on Mercer Street. Aim for the pillar you can see straight ahead.
So we've walked up Mercer Street and now we find ourselves on this circle. We've got a pillar in the middle with some blue sundials up top and around us we've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven streets leading off here. We're in seven dials, a very different kind of development. The story here starts the same way we've seen so many times before. The land belongs to a monastic hospital. It's taken by Henry VIII. He takes almost everything. Then, 150 years later, the Crown gives it to a Thomas Neal. He's a member of Parliament, but he's also pretty financially savvy. He's managed to devise a lottery which raises the Crown £1 million. So, of course, they're a little grateful. And pretty quickly, he realises he can make some money. You'll find his name on a street and a yard close by. And so he lays out a plan for the development of the area. He's quite cheeky, too. The one he submits has six streets and a church, but he, in fact, lays out seven more money from more streets. They radiate from this pillar, which actually has six sundials on the top of it. The pillar itself is the seventh sundial, and he leases it to builders. It's a way of outsourcing the risk. The streets have quite narrow frontages, meaning you can maximise profit in the short term. But there's a problem such narrow, small houses don't stay desirable for very long. He sacrificed the quality of the area for his financial return. And soon enough, Seven Dials has become a centre for vice, a centre for crime. In the middle of the 18th century, you may know William Hogarth's print of Gin Lane. We're beginning to get into that area of debauchery, depravity, and so on. In 1773, this pillar is actually taken away because it's a meeting place for the mob to congregate before they smash things up. In the early 19th century, Dickens, commenting on actual, not fictional London, talks about... The streets and the courts dart in all directions until they're lost in the unwholesome vapour which hangs over the housetops and renders the dirty perspective uncertain and confined. A bit later on, some people think he's actually basing his description of a neighbourhood in Bleak House, Tom All Alone's, on Seven Dials. Joe lives. That is to say, Joe has not yet died in a ruinous place known to the like of him by the name of Tom All Alones. It is a black, dilapidated street, avoided by all decent people, where the crazy houses were seized upon, when their decay was far advanced, by some bold vagrants who, after establishing their own possession, took to letting them out in lodgings. Now these tumbling tenements contain, by night, a swarm of misery, as on the ruined human wretch vermin parasites appear, so these ruined shelters have bred a crowd of foul existence that crawls in and out of gaps in walls and boards and coils itself to sleep in maggot numbers where the rain drips in and comes and goes, fetching and carrying fever and sowing evil. Already by the time Dickens is writing that passage, though, the authorities have begun to clear things out, and those clearances of the slum continue for 40 years, more or less, until the 1880s. Residential property gets turned into commercial property, industrial property. We've seen some of this with the warehouses. But again, this area, it's a bit confined. Uh, This isn't prime real estate for commercial or industrial either, at least then. And so some of the houses survive. We can still see some of them in the streets around us. Fast forward a century to the 1970s. We've talked about this already. The authorities want to redevelop Covent Garden wholesale. In fact, by that point, 90% of the housing in this area has been vacant for 40 years in anticipation of demolition. But those plans fall through, regeneration starts up, and indeed this becomes ground zero for a very different vision. Small independent shops, the British food revolution of the last 40 years, started here. Good cheese, good coffee. The block to our left on Mercer Street, the one we came up, was one of the lauded reuses of the existing fabric. So we're going to leave Seven Dials now. We're continuing straight across past the pillar, again down Mercer Street. In the distance, we can see a frieze under a sign for the Odeon Cinema. The 
We're walking up the northern half of Mercer Street. Ahead of us, we can see the Odeon Cinema. That's on Shaftesbury Avenue. On our right, we've got a red brick building. This was originally a Baptist chapel built in 1888. It's now the Chinese Church in London. They've been around since 1950. They took over this building in 2004. And then across the street, the Odeon was originally a theatre, not a cinema, built in 1931. We can now see the frieze more clearly, and what you have depicted here is drama through the ages. Cross Shaftesbury Avenue, go to the right of the cinema, head towards the garden you can see in the distance. We're heading up St Giles Passage with the Odeon Cinema on our left. We can see a garden. This is Phoenix Garden. This is the last surviving community garden in Covent Garden now. Originally houses and a pub were on this block. It was bombed in World War II. It became a car park and it was turned into a community garden in 1984. It's a lovely restful space in which to escape the city, which you can hear busy Shaftesbury Avenue behind us. We're heading past the garden, though, go through the gateway and up the steps. We've headed up the steps and we're in what's obviously a churchyard. We've got the church ahead of us, to its left a striking tall concrete block, to its right some multicoloured, almost Lego-like buildings. We're in St Giles in the Fields. Like St Martin in the Fields, the predecessor to the church is the first thing here. It's a monastic leper hospital. It's founded in 1101. It's on the main route out of and away from the city, which leads along High Holborn, now St Giles High Street. And soon enough, there's a lane linking it to the church we started at, St Martin, also in the fields. Fast forward four centuries to the unavoidable Henry VIII. The monastery is dissolved, the hospital's land is given away, but the chapel, which had begun to be used as a parish church, survives. It's the centre of a small little hamlet that's grown up around it. The church is rebuilt in the early 17th century, it's rebuilt again in the 1730s, which is what we see in front of us now. But... As we've already discovered, soon things are getting bad. Hogarth, Gin Lane, the whole area is pretty dodgy. And so, come the mid-19th century, the authorities are beginning to take action. They're building new roads. We've just crossed one Shaftesbury Avenue. We'll see another new Oxford Street in a moment. But nothing really changes. Where we see those colourful Lego-like blocks now is redeveloped in the 1950s for the government. But there's no public access, and quickly it becomes a magnet for prostitution, for homelessness. The welfare state is not doing a great job for many people in London. But come the end of the 20th century, the Covent Garden effect is underway. Regeneration is beginning to spread north, and this area around St Giles is identified for regeneration. Soon after that, the tall concrete block on our left goes up, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in the next episode. Where those blocks are is, in fact, a project of Mitsubishi Real Estate, Japanese capital coming to London to do its thing. They hire Renzo Piano. We've met him before. He's the architect who designed the Pompidou Centre with Richard Rogers in the 1970s. Around the same time he's doing this, he's also beginning to work on the Shard, south of the river. It's a mixed development. It's got retail, it's got office, it's got residential. 53 out of the 109 flats are in fact affordable, which is a quite high proportion for recent developments in London. But it gets very mixed reviews. One critic calls it a Marmite building, which is entirely appropriate. What's Marmite for some, though, is Marmite for others. Google quite likes it. Google moved in as soon as it was completed, and earlier this year, January 2022, offered a clean $1 billion for the whole thing. So, we've got the first part of our story. We have the first stirrings of elite property development early in the 17th century in Covent Garden, now to our south, down by the Strand, close to the court. We have some more early initiatives after the Restoration. 
mixed fortunes in this area in the centuries since, and a recent upswing as property changes hands, as money comes back to the centre of the city, some of it from East Asia, as some of the past is preserved, and as the buildings, old and new, are turned to new uses. In the second half of this episode, we'll see what happens to the Bedford estate over the same period. They established the template for what's called aristocratic capitalism for the next 150 years. This is a good place to pause the podcast and think a little bit about what we've seen so far. We'll come back. Welcome back. We've seen some early examples of how the nobility starts developing their estates in the 17th century. Now let's see how a later generation of the same family, the Bedfords, develops an actual template for aristocratic capitalism. It takes them a little while to fully exploit their invention. We'll see how others profit from it in other episodes. But to get to ground zero, we're going to need to walk a little ways along the street in front of us and back in time. We're leaving St. Giles Churchyard now. Skirt the church to the right, exit the churchyard, turn right along the street in front of the colourful blocks. We've walked down St. Giles High Street. We've crossed the road in front of the green block. We're turning left on Shaftesbury Avenue. As we walk up Shaftesbury Avenue on our left, we've got a huge Bloomsbury Central Baptist Church, middle of the 19th century. By this point, the nonconformists are beginning to build on the major road. Though the landlord here is the Crown Estate. They don't want them. They're a little bit suspicious. They think they have dull architecture. The man who built this is Samuel Morton Pito. He's already built Nelson's Column. We saw it at the start of the walk. He builds clubs. We'll see those in the next episode. He's also busy in railways. And when he's asked about the lack of spires on nonconformist churches, he says, Aspire, my lord, we shall have two. It's there until 1951 when it's removed because it's unsafe. We're continuing up Shaftesbury Avenue a little ways. We're going to turn right on New Oxford Street. We're turning right on New Oxford Street now. Ahead of us, we can see James Smith and Sons. When New Oxford Street is built, they hope that a lot of shops move in. They don't, but this is one of the originals. It sells umbrellas, sticks, and things like that. We're walking down New Oxford Street a little ways. We're leaving James Smith. Cross over to the left-hand side of New Oxford Street at the next traffic light. You'll see Coptic Street. Then continue down New Oxford Street. We're continuing down New Oxford Street just a little ways. We're coming up on Chang's Noodles. I can recommend it highly. They have very good warm soup noodles. But we can't stop there today, even though it's freezing. And we're turning left at the next corner. This is Museum Street. The first house on our left is 18 Museum Street. Until very recently, this was the New York Times Bureau in London. But they look as if they've moved out. We're heading down Museum Street. It leads to Great Russell Street. In the distance, you can see the British Museum looming ahead, but we're turning right on Little Russell Street. We're walking down Little Russell Street, and almost immediately on our right, we can see the spire, a very striking spire of a church. This is St. George Bloomsbury. This is the church in the background of Hogarth's Gin Lane. It was actually only finished 20 years before he made that picture. And it's by Nicholas Hawksmoor. We've met him before in earlier walks. We've already seen three of his surviving six churches. He's as clever as he always was with this church. He's basing it on a Roman historian, Pliny. 
Pliny's description of a mausoleum of Halicarnassus, 4th century BCE. And that's actually the thing that generates the word mausoleum. Hoxmore's copying that, but he's using that to celebrate the new royal dynasty. You've got George I on top, you've got the lion and unicorn at the base. It's a bit of a royal statement. It is a splendid church. But we're continuing down Little Russell Street. At the end of Little Russell Street, if we look left, we can see a little bit of the British Museum. Across the street, we can see the London Review Bookshop. But again, we can't stop. We're going straight over this street into the courtyard we can see ahead of us, Galen Place. We're in Galen Place now. It's also called Pied Bull Court. We're turning left in front of the photo store. We've come out from the archway into another court. We've got the Cordon Bleu Café in front of us. We're turning right in front of that. We've come out from this archway. Immediately ahead of us, we can see a big square. Turn right here. On the left, you'll see some gates leading into the square. Find a bench to sit down there. So here we are in Bloomsbury Square. On the north side, the west side, the south side, we've got terraced houses with a bit of other stuff mixed in. On the east side, we've got a huge, much larger building. Covent Garden, we've seen it in the first half of this episode, that had planted a seed. But that's a top-down initiative. It's court-appointed architect. He has a plan. The houses are subordinate to the whole. But it's here in Bloomsbury Square that its owner comes up with a system that determines the subsequent history of the West End we'll see repeated again and again and again in the next episodes. It's a system that the late wonderful historian Roy Porter called aristocratic capitalism and it's worth just pausing a moment to take it apart. There are a few different elements to it. First, there's the aristocratic estate. The land is owned by aristocrats, but there's a problem. It's entailed, meaning it can't be sold away. It has to be passed down in the family. And also, if you're an aristocrat, you don't want to risk your capital. If you know the French economist Thomas Piketty, he said that the value of assets increases over time more than the value of income. Back in the 17th century, the English aristocracy seemed to know this instinctively. So the aristocrat here is the Earl of Southampton. He's acquired the estate in the 16th century. He sells off 42-year leases. The ground rent on the lease is pretty low. But it's the lessee who is responsible for the development, for building substantial houses. And they're going to become the aristocrats, the landlord's property at the end of the lease. It minimizes Southampton's outlay, it guarantees the quality of the development, and it offloads the risk. It's the lessee who takes on the risk. Sometimes he's a middleman, sometimes he waits for the right tenant to come and then he builds, sometimes he builds on spec. And that produces what you see here. It's a garden square. In the garden, the residents can parade for each other's delectation. Around it, you've got wide streets leading off. They're actually double the width of contemporary streets in Paris at the time. And around that, you have smaller streets with shops and so on. The whole thing forms a village, a visitor, while the development is ongoing talked about Southampton building a noble square or a piazza or a little town. He was a little confused, but all of those things are true. And around the square, for the most part, you have narrow-fronted terraces. You have vertical living. This is a novelty, and we'll talk about it much more. You have the kitchen in the basement, you have the family themselves on the three floors, and then the servants in the attic. Again, though, there's a problem. The aristocrat can't sell the estate. So if you want to expand your estate, the only way to do it is through marriage. And again, Southampton paves the way, or at least he paves the way after his death. Two years after his death, in 1669, his widowed daughter and heir, Rachel Vaughan, marries the son and heir of the Earl, 
soon to be Duke of Bedford. They're the owners of Covent Garden. That's where the fashion started, of course. And so Covent Garden and Bloomsbury are joined in one estate, the Bedford Estate. At that point, the two squares, the Covent Garden Piazza, Bloomsbury Square, are still surrounded by small tenements, market gardens. We don't see the development we have today. A little side note here, soon enough, Rachel is living next to her stepsister. She's married Ralph Montague, who has a lot of money. He buys the land and builds the mansion, which becomes the British Museum. At that point, then, the Bedfords and their relatives are doing pretty well. They've taken the initiative. But the next generation is slow to build on it. They don't build up the rest of the estate, and other aristocrats take advantage. Fashion moves west. So the square we see today is a recent development. Some of the houses give you some sense of the original scale in the north to the west a little bit. A lot of them have been rebuilt. To the south, we've got much more 19th century stuff, in fact. I see a tall red brick building that's in the 1880s built for the College of Preceptors. That means teachers. It's actually the first professional teaching body in the UK. Over to its left, we can see a diagonal little street leading away, Sicilian Avenue, purpose-built shopping from the early 20th century. And then this huge building over to our right in the 1920s. This is actually an insurance building. This is the Liverpool Victoria Friendly Society. Started up in 1843 to provide poor people with a decent funeral. It's nationwide by the 1860s. By the 1880s, it's in London. By the 1920s, they are beginning to administer national insurance which means they have the funds they need to build something like this. But the further development of Bloomsbury in the early years comes in two waves, and we're going to have to walk out of the square to see that. The first bit of it comes right at the end of the 18th century. Southampton had originally built a mansion for himself at the north end of the square, and in 1800 he pulls that down so he can begin to lay out the streets we now see ahead of us. We're going to walk towards that street past the statue at the north end of the square. At the statue, we're just branching left, we'll get out of the square cross the road and head up Bedford Place. Now continue to walk up Bedford Place. We'll cross over into Russell Square. We've come to the end of Bedford Place, cross the road, Go to the right of the statue of Francis, Duke of Bedford. Go through the gate and make your way to the middle of the square. So Russell Square is the largest square in London when it's laid out in the early 19th century. It's laid out in this new landscape style and it's the starting point for a further wave of development of the Bedford Estate to the north. More squares to our north, elongated this time. They're all the way up to Euston Road by the middle of the 19th century. But the Bedfords are still quite conservative. They ration the number of shops on their estate. They ban pubs. They also gate the entrances. Nonetheless, they can't stop progress, of course. And we can see it here in Russell Square. By the late 19th century, there's terracotta on some of these houses. In 1898, to our right, we're looking at a huge hotel, the Russell Hotel, built in a kind of French style, Francois I. And when you've got hotels, it suggests that the tone of the square is declining. It's not residential anymore. It's tipping over into commercial. Surely enough, therefore, by the early 20th century, famously Bloomsbury, not Russell Square, another square just to our north, is the home for intellectuals and artists, the Bloomsbury Group. Bloomsbury is the birth of English modernism. Virginia Woolf first talks about the group in 1914. She talks about Thursday evening parties, which are the germ from which sprang all that has since come to be called in newspapers, in novels, in Germany, in France, even, I dare say, in Turkey and Timbuktu, by the name of Bloomsbury. But here she is talking about what they talked about. Sex permeated our conversation. The word bugger was never far from our lips. We discussed copulation with the same excitement and openness 
that we discussed the nature of good. Before the war, when all intellectual questions had been debated so freely, sex was ignored. Now a flood of light poured in upon that department too. We had known everything, but we'd never talked. Now we talked of nothing else. So there was now nothing that one could not say, nothing that one could not do, at 46 Gordon Square. It was, I think, a great advance in civilization. That was Virginia Woolf. A little later, Dorothy Parker famously said that the Bloomsbury Group lived in squares, painted in circles and loved in triangles. Hardly what the Bedfords had imagined when they first laid out these squares. And, of course, development goes on in the 20th century. To the left of the hotel, we've got a 1941 block kind of Regency classical. To the hotel's right, another hotel built in the 1960s, this time modernist concrete, not universally loved. But the real transformation of Bloomsbury, the second act of the transformation of Bloomsbury, comes with its takeover by the University of London in the 20th century. To start telling that story, we're going to move to the northwest of the square and just pause in that corner, where we can see the post office tower in the distance. We're near the edge of the square now, and ahead of us we can see a skyscraper. This is the University of London. We can't see the earliest bit of the university. That's University College London. It's a little bit to our north. That started up in 1825. And then the university sets up in 1836. But in the early 20th century, the University of London needs some central buildings for administration, for library, for some of its schools. And so it acquires land between the British Museum and University College the land we're looking at now, and it starts to build. And the building comes in two or three waves. What we're looking at now, this tall building ahead of us, it comes in the 1930s. This is part of the original scheme. This is Senate House. It is London's first skyscraper. It's a little hesitant. Um, some people think it's almost fascist architecture in a way. It has some things in common with Mussolini's Rome. Inside it has some wonderful arts and crafts details. And at the same time, the university is building other bits of its campus. But to see the second wave of university development, we're going to leave the square, head to the corner, turn left around the garden there, and head out of the gates. We've come out of the gates, we've got a green cabman shelter with a very good cup of tea to our right, head over the pedestrian crossing straight in front of us, head for the street sign you can see, Thornhouse Street. We're standing by the sign for Thornhouse Street. We can also see we're standing next to a building called the Brunei Gallery, and it's the place where we can see the rest of the university's development. The second wave of development comes in the late 1950s. During the war, there had been a proposal that the whole precinct of the university should become traffic-free, which it now more or less is. That plan at the time is only implemented in part, but on our right you can see some of what's going on. This is Dennis Lasden, an architect, and he builds this for the Institute for Education between the 60s and the 70s. The original plan is, in fact, for a massive, what's called a megastructure, we can see there's a kind of spur sticking out from a concrete main axis. Originally, there were meant to be five of these leading all the way up to University College with pedestrian routes at different heights. We're back to that Barbican idea of the city of the future. To the left of the Institute of Education, we can see SOAS, stands for the School of Oriental and African Studies. It was here a little earlier. That's the library I used to teach here. But then architectural fashion moves on. Megastructures go out of style. There's an enthusiasm for fake Georgian offices and the building on our left, the Brunei Gallery, is built at that time. Unfortunately, as we can see from the plaque on our left, they didn't ask permission from the Bedfords, so they have commemorated that with an apology to the family. We're now going to the end of the Brunei Gallery and we're turning left, walking between the two Soaz buildings.
We're walking between the two Soas buildings now. To our left, we can see a bit of Senate House, this skyscraper, a huge building. Soas occupies part of that. To our right, we can see Birkbeck, another college of the University of London. Continue straight to the end of the pedestrian precinct. We've come out of the gates at the end of the SOAS precinct. Ahead of us, we can see the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. We're turning left on this street, which is Mallet Street. We're continuing to walk down Mallet Street. We can now see on our left the other side of the Senate House skyscraper. It is quite striking. On our right, we can begin to see on the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine some little gold insects, vectors of disease, which are studied in that building. Beyond that, on our right, a garden, a private garden for the University of London. Continue to the end of Mallet Street. We're at the end of Mallet Street now. We've got that garden on our right and we're looking straight ahead at the back of the British Museum. We saw it from the front up Museum Street, but we can pause here and work out what's going on. British Museum starts in 1753. Sir Hans Sloan gives his collection to the country. Montague House opens in 1759 as a place to show it off. But the collections grow and so the museum grows. The front of the museum, which we saw up Museum Street, was built in the early 19th century. Soon enough it has a reading room in the courtyard, the genesis of the British Library. And then the building we see on our left in front of us. This is a new north wing built at the beginning of the 20th century. It now houses East Asia. The library moves out of the museum in 1994, so the central courtyard is covered over. It's very striking if you look at it from the air, maybe on Google Earth. And then ahead of us on our right, we have the latest edition. This is the World Conservation and Exhibitions Centre, built in 2014 by the Rogers Sturck Partnership. We're now turning right in front of the museum. When you come to the end of this street, Montague Place, cross Gower Street, head straight over into Bedford Square, the final stop on this walk. We've crossed Gower Street, we've walked into Bedford Square and over to the far side. Around us we've got four-storey Georgian terraces. What's happened? In the middle of the 18th century, people are beginning to complain about a lack of planning in the West End. All the squares are being built piecemeal, they don't look that great. So here's John Gwynne. He says that London is inconvenient, inelegant, and without the least pretension to magnificence or grandeur. And he calls for proper bounds to be set to that fury, which seems to possess the fraternity of builders, to prevent them from extending the town in the enormous manner that they do. So, in the 1760s and 1770s, you get a slew of what are called improvement acts. There's policing, there's workhouses, there's paving. They specify what curbs and gutters should look like. And it all culminates in the London Building Act in 1774, which defines four rates for houses. They're defined by square footage, the number of stories, from four down to two, and from the value and it happens to impose a degree of standardization on building thereafter. Here, where we are, Bedford Square, is its first triumph. This is also where the Bedfords begin to redevelop their estate, before Russell Square, which we've just seen. You've got four coherent sides to the square in the middle of each. You've got a central unit, which is stuccoed, has a pediment on top. It looks wonderful. It's all still almost entirely original. 
The most interesting thing, though, I think, is that much of the decoration you see around the doorways, the decorative elements, is in fact the product of the Code Manufactory. This is one of the 18th century's wonderful businesswomen. Eleanor Code was born in Exeter. She had a good model. Her grandma was a successful businesswoman. Eleanor never married, but she did call herself Mrs. for respectability at the time. And in 1769, she buys this factory in Lambeth, south of the river, where they produce this artificial stone, Code stone. All the fashionable architects of the time use it to decorate their buildings, to make them look neoclassical, even though the stone is artificial. They use it on facings, they use it on doorways, as here. They also use it on sculpture. There's a lot of royal palaces with code stone in them. It's in St George's Chapel, Windsor. There's also a wonderful lion at the south end of Westminster Bridge, if you want to go and check it out. And so Bedford Square comes into existence. The first occupants are lawyers. It's quite close to the Inns of Court. In the 19th century, you begin to get doctors, you begin to get architects. Nowadays, almost the whole square is filled with offices, a lot of them for cultural institutions. You've got the Architectural Association on the west side of the square. Right next door to it, you have Sotheby's Institute of Art, so people can learn to value commodities properly, perhaps. The Bedfords were the pioneers of aristocratic capitalism. They combined a leasehold system with a new vision of urban living, which is going to help maintain the value of their estate over the generations. They develop it carefully, slowly, if you like, and they continue to maintain what remains of it well. It didn't meet the fate of Covent Garden and Seven Dials. But the Bedfords aren't immune to the winds of fashion, the dictates of authority, the march of time. They were slow to build on the rest of Bloomsbury, which means that other aristocrats further west are better placed to capitalise on the burgeoning demand for this kind of stuff. In the 19th century, the value of the estate suffers. The trains are close by, three main stations just to the north of the estate. In 1890, Parliament says that the gates, which restrict access to what's meant to be an exclusive development, have to come down and traffic starts to flow through. But the Bedfords are the first, even if they're not the most ambitious. They set the template, and we're going to explore what happens as a result of that in the next two episodes of this walk. The second episode begins at Tottenham Court Road, which is just to our southwest here, a few hundred yards away. It's on a couple of subway lines, including the new Elizabeth line. Head to the entrance of the tube. We'll meet you there. Historicity is written and presented by Angus Lockyer and produced by Jelena Sofronievich. See the episode notes for the other walks and follow Historicity wherever you get your podcasts.